All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman. On this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. As always, if you can, please do leave us a rating or review, particularly on on Apple Podcasts. It does help us, and we do appreciate that. I hate begging for it, but we actually get more ratings when we beg for it, so here we are. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. It's uh, still a couple weeks away here, but uh, we... Uh... We saw each other for the first time in a while. The rare we, Sixers. We did, and I'm I'm very sorry for you. But we we did run into each other, yeah. The rare Sixers PR event that we both attended. And yep. why did we both go? Well, I think we're entertained by Charles Barkley. When you have a chance to interact with Chuck, you have to take take that opportunity. Um, Chuck is an always entertaining figure. He always has something to say. And if I'm being completely honest. Uh, you know, I was a child of the 80s and the 90s. Uh, one of the reasons I got into basketball was that guy. So it was an opportunity not to pass up. Uh, and it's easier to say that because I don't cover him. He is a fellow in the media. But certainly I was a fan back then. And that was a, uh, you know, that was that was an interesting event for sure. And, and I'm not going to lie. Before I, uh, before I shower him with praise, I disagree with pretty much everything he says from a basketball <laughs> opinion standpoint when he's on TV, but yeah, he's just this larger than life personality who does spend a lot of his time in Philadelphia. And I I forget who said this, but it's true. I don't think I've ever seen somebody so famous, just so at ease with normal people and so gracious with their time. And uh, there were plenty of stories about that. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to see him talk and it was great. Yeah, no, I mean, he has, he has embraced the city, which wasn't Always the case, I think, particularly in the early part of his career. And we don't need to get too deep into stuff that happened, you know, 30 years ago. But uh, he is a larger than life is the exact way that I would describe him. You know, a a pretty frustrating era of Sixers basketball, I think. Certainly some of the trades and the personnel moves of that era paved that way. I don't think that was very much related to Chuck at all, even though I think superstars and he, he said this the other day, they get too much of the credit and too much of the blame, and I think that's true. And that team was not equipped to compete, uh, and that was a shame because he was he was one hell of a player and one heck of an entertaining figure. And, you know, he had comments on everything from Embiid and Simmons to the USA FIBA basketball team to life and dealing with fame and dealing with being a young athlete. And he had he had some pretty good thoughts on, on, on pretty much all of it. So if you can find one of the, you know, one of the streams, one of the feeds, as many quotes as you can get, I would, I would go check it out. Like you said, I don't always agree. And by always, I mean, I frequently disagree with some of his hard, like real basketball takes, but that's never been Chuck's role on anything that he's been on. He was, he was, I mean, he's always been an engaging personality. And it really reminds me and not to, you know, I love my job. I want to get that out of the way clearly. But that was a very different media era covering Charles. That was a very different media era covering Allen Iverson. And to cover two engaging figures like that with the access they had and the openness they had from those personalities, it must have just been a, uh, you know, we sort of dive deep into the analysis. And I think we would always do that. But having those guys feed you quotes every now and then must have been just an absolute blast because Charles is very willing to do that. Yeah, and obviously it's a different era now, but to have Barkley, Iverson, and Embiid on the same franchise, that's a tough trio in terms of, you know, just quotable figures who 
really don't take themselves too seriously. Uh, I mean, the, the difference with Embiid is, first of all, he is more guarded than those two, and second of all, it's just much more infrequent. Yeah, yeah. Like you, I've heard reporters tell stories about how like Chuck would just sit in the locker room and talk to them for like forty-five minutes or an hour, just telling them all kinds of stuff on the record, and that just doesn't that doesn't happen anymore. You get well, your five to seven minutes in a scrum, and that's that's what you get. You might get a little bit off the record if you if you can. But you're not getting you're not getting 45 minutes on the record. That's for sure. Well, they were going to cut him off the other day, and he was like, "No, I'll keep going." And he went for <laughs> yeah. I don't know 40 minutes. He answered literally every question people had, and people had a lot of questions. Chuck so, came before of, before the day of two more questions. Yes. Uh, so you do remember watching him play? Yes, absolutely. So I looked up his stats in Philly, and I like to think that I have a pretty solid sense of history. So you know, in general, I knew he was a monster. I've seen. You know, the the YouTube videos of him going coast to coast, which is some of the craziest shit you'll ever see. Um, just a big guy moving that well. Yes. Is, you, you he just, was a hell of an athlete. You just didn't want to get in front of him. And, you know, a lot of times, I think the NBA defenders, they thought the same thing. When he got ahead of steam, it was just, I'm not getting in front of this guy. But I did look up his numbers. And there is a five-season stretch in Philly. I believe it's from, I have it right here, 86 to nine or uh, to ninety one, that his numbers are as follows: twenty six points, twelve rebounds, four assists per game, a steal and a half and a block. But most importantly to me, those twenty six points came on sixty five point five percent true shooting. He led the league in true shooting four years in a row. Yep. What? He did that over a five year span. So just as a frame of reference, James Harden had a sixty five point five percent true shooting. Once in his career, and that was in Oklahoma City. LeBron and Durant never did it. They both got close. Steph did it twice. But Chuck did that over five years. I think even if I I logically know the league is better now, and he would be def- defended a lot better now with the way kind of teams can load up to the strong side and all that stuff, that's still crazy. Yeah, and oh, by the way, he was a dominant rebounder who could who could pass pass the ball too? We won't talk too much about that other end, but all of that stuff is absolutely incredible. And it would have been it would have been great to see him paired with teammates, real competent championship quality teammates for more of his career, particularly the Philadelphia part of his career. That will be one of the great shames of this franchise. I mean that that whole Brad Doherty, um, Moses <laughs> Malone, which he referenced, uh, just absolutely disastrous. But I mean, you know, it's it's it's. I think at the time, I, I remember when he got traded and, you know, you had Weatherspoon coming up. Everybody knew it was a, a horrible trade at the time, but you had some hope that Weatherspoon could at least be competent. But that was a, a crushing day. And I think even looking back on it now, that trade has just gotten worse and worse and worse. But I think at the time he took a lot of heat in Philadelphia because there was all kinds of reporting that he wanted out. And I I mean, I think he did want out. Like he, he denied even yesterday or the other day that he, you know, requested a trade or demanded a trade. I, he very clearly wanted out. But I think he was right in doing so. And I think over time that sort of, a little bit of that animosity has, not a little bit, a lot of that animosity has died down. And I think he's absolutely deserving of that statue on the Legends Walk. You know, I what assume you, we will have Iverson joining him pretty soon. What do you but think uh, of that idea that those statues should be somewhere else? Oh, I, I think I think they'll be better off being public. And, like, I get the fact that you want to adorn your training facility and your corporate headquarters with stuff and memorabilia. 
But if you're going to make a big scene of these statues and send out the press releases and have all the media there, that should be something the fans can go up and see too. So I think they should have, like, we were in the, what was it, the Allen Iverson room not too long ago for the Mike Scott interview. And, you know, they had all kinds of photos and press clippings of Iverson and his tenure and what he meant to the franchise. And that's great. But if you're going to make a big, big to do about these, about these statues, and yeah, I, I would prefer, I think, for them to be at the, the Wells Fargo Center. Yeah, I mean, those statues are something we barely even pay attention to, and we, no, walk, we walk by them by. every yeah. time we're at the practice facility, and we're the only people who can do that. So, yeah, it was a really nice statue as well. So, yeah, I don't know. if you put. <laughs> he, if you, he had so many good lines. He At one point, he was talking about the statue they put out there, and he's like, man, I got one at at, uh, at my college couple years ago my first response was who the fuck is that (laughs) but this one is actually good i like this one except for the fact that he said that he has never been as thin as that statue portrays him as brett brown speaking yeah speaking of good lines that was the line of the day so apparently uh a bunch of people got up to speak and billy cunningham was one of them who was charles first coach with the sixers so he mentioned that houston and i believe bill fitch was the coach was tanking for Olajuwon, and he was uh, he was razzing Charles and saying, "Well, if they weren't, uh, you know, if the uh, lottery existed or, or they weren't so brazenly tanking, we could have gotten Olajuwon or Jordan, <laughs> and it would have been better." And bef- before kind of showering Charles with all this praise, so Brett gets up next and he goes, "Can you believe Bill Fitch uh, would lose intentionally for high picks? That is shocking to me." <laughs> he was like high picks. I I couldn't believe he said that. That was hilarious. Um, he's feeling loose. So what was the other thing I was thinking? Of? Oh, Barkley is really gung ho on the Sixers winning the championship this year. By the way, yes. I don't know. You know with the acknowledgement that I often disagree with what he says, uh, I'm not sure how I should feel about that. I uh, it's hard to kind of reconcile, but yeah. Um, so that was, that was good. That was good to get done. The next real event we have is Brett Brown. He has a yearly media luncheon right before training camp starts. And then we'll have media day and then a couple of days of training camp before we get back into preseason basketball. So it is coming soon, but we do have to move on from that. I guess right now in terms of content over at theathletic.com slash Philly, once again, subscribe. It's a decent website. You should go check it out. If not for us, me and Rich and Mike O'Connor, then for the rest of the Philly staff, and and certainly for the national staff and every other local staff, everything you could imagine is is over on that website. We have we can take very, very little credit for a very small portion of it, but we will do that. And you should go check it out. There's a deal right now too. It's uh, it's Phil. It's Phi PHI anniversary. If you type the athletic.com slash that in, um. 40% off, and we we always say it's like going for the uh, price of one one coffee per month, but this is like this is like downgrading from a venti to a tall. You know, this is a much smaller coffee you even have to pay. So come on, big season coming up. You know you want to do it. Come on over, and you will never see that 40% offer again. Last time you will see that. So go make sure you get it right now. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to player previews, which is what we're writing about. We've had three up, uh, Jonah Bolden, James Ennis, Shake Milton. Bolden from Mike, Ennis from you, Milton from 
myself, or at least Mil- Milton will be up probably by the time I get this podcast out, but if not, relatively soon. So I guess we'll start off with the one that you did on James Ennis. What are your thoughts? What is his role? What will he add to the team? What does he need to do? What will determine whether or not his season is a success? Mr. Go Guy, huh? Uh, can I, first off, before we start, can I ask you a question about this? Was there ever a specific instance where there was a player who you thought was older than you, who then at some point you looked and was not older than you? Oh, and, God. And it kind of made you feel old. I know, I know you're kind of, you're a couple years older than me, so you might. There aren't, there aren't that many. Dirk last year would have been older than me. There's, there's a couple, but not Vince. I still got Vince by a couple years, so that's nice. But yeah, like in my, you know, when I first started covering the team, well, let me think, who would it be? But I first started covering the team, what, back in 2011-ish, when I would have been 29. Yeah. And certainly there were players who, you know, who who, who looked older and to my dismay were not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is about James Ennis, whether it's the beard or just kind of him being a soft-spoken guy, kind of feels like he's been in the league a little longer. I always thought he was three years older than me. See, I, I, I agree with you on, on those two, the beard and the soft-spoken. But he also seems a little unsure of himself. Not, not unsure of himself, but he's not completely – doesn't seem like he's completely comfortable speaking in front of a camera or speaking in front of a scrum. I'll give you that. And I usually associate that with younger players. So that's yeah. the one thing that kind of draws me back. In reality, it's just that prior to getting here, James Ennis probably wasn't involved in too many scrums. So it's just a new thing for him. But that's the one thing that I think holds me back from that. So yeah, I looked it up, and he's actually about a month younger than me, and that uh, that made me a little a little sad. But uh, on to actual basketball stuff, I I feel like even though there's a decent chance Ennis is going to be involved come playoff time, and if it's the same as last year, he'll be very involved come playoff time. We kind of know what he is, and that's not a bad thing. I'm sure the coaching staff takes comfort in that. But he's a good team guy who plays extremely hard on defense, even if there are some limitations there. He crashes the offensive glass, Mr. Go-Guy, and he does literally one of two things on offense. He shoots a three from the wing, or he uses the old man YMCA pump fake and drives to the rim, sometimes out of control. And I feel like that's what we have here. And it's it's not a bad player, but uh, he's going to have to shoot it a little better this year. I had, I had this stat in here. I think it was only 18 games, so small sample, but he shot... 31.3% on catch-and-shoot threes during the regular season. Got to be better. Which yeah. was good enough to win the quiet tournament, but it's going to be it's going to be a little louder this year. So he's going to have to do a little bit better than that. But I, I do think, uh, I think I looked at his last three years before that, he knocked down more than 35% of those catch-and-shoot shots. So I, I think he'll probably be a little bit better. Let me Let me ask you a question. If Elton Brand and Brett Brown had their druthers, or if you don't want to pin it on those two, just think of the entire organization, their their best-case scenario. Do you think the best outcome for the Sixers moving forward is that by the time the playoffs roll around, James Ennis is not in the rotation? Well, sure, because that means your young players have developed. That means that Matisse and Zaire are much, much better than, or at least much, are good sooner, much sooner than you would have expected them to be. And your team is deeper and has more options. And yeah, I, th- I think that would be a best case scenario. Do I think that is all that realistic? Probably not. I mean, James Ennis, you know, we sort of fell in love with, and finger quotes right now, fell in love with him because he wasn't Jonathan Simmons and he wasn't Furkan Korkmaz. 
but you know, he still like he had he shot forty one percent from the field, like you said, thirty point six percent from three, only thirty one percent on catch and shoot threes. He did not play stellar basketball. He played better in the playoffs, much better in the playoffs. But he did not you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. And by the way, I think like I think he'll shoot the ball better. He shot thirty six point seven percent from three in Houston. He shot what, thirty only thirty three percent the previous year and then thirty seven point two percent the year before that. So he's a little bit streaky, which is, is kind of emblematic of a low-volume three-point shooter who's not elite. But you need him to shoot better this year. Other than that, you can generally be the same player he was last year. You know, he's not a shutdown level defender, but he's active and he can defend multiple spots. And if he can do that, you know, make a couple of those crazy, sort of out of control, but kind of in control drives a game, and then also make his open shots, he will have a role. And if he does that and he doesn't have a role, it means your young guys have popped more than you expected. I definitely think he built up some cachet with that playoff performance when, you know, co- coaches tend to, Brett, Brett's not different than, than many coaches. They tend to favor veterans. And I, I do think, like, he just knows that this guy played in a, a serious playoff series where, you know, we were fighting with the eventual NBA champions and gave us quality wing minutes, which on, uh, on last year's Sixers off the bench, that was not a given. Um, by the way, now that he's gone, remember, John, remember John, when he wasn't ready for the first round and we all freaking panicked? Oh, and he came back in the second game, and obviously the rest of the team figured their stuff out too. But it was a marked difference. Day, I know. Yeah. And James Ennis should not be the savior to your first round playoff series against the Nets. So, so now that he's gone, John Simmons has to be one of your least favorite players of all time, right? I mean, he was a decent enough guy it seemed like so in terms I'm, talking, I'm of, talking about on the court so like Tony Roten frustrated me more but you had no expectations for Tony Roten or that team but his style of play just if, if Tony Roten was on this team right now first of all he wouldn't be but second of all he would like just lose my mind and he is like the more out of control the more confident the more irrationally confident and ball handly version of Jonathan Simmons but yes that style of player drives me up a wall Tony Roten is now playing in Poland. Hey, just, just looked it up. So good for him. Uh, I remember I would sit there with you during those games in a way <laughs> you normally don't put your foot down. Kind of like me with the self-driving cars, honestly. You were like, man, I don't know how much more I can watch this guy play basketball. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I, I knew he was bad, but it, it's just his decision-making really really got to you. Um, Ennis, yeah. I, I think Ennis is probably going to start the season as the uh, the first wing off the bench. And I think with Zaire and Matisse, even though the Sixers, in, in their best-case scenario, would want those guys to develop kind of over him, uh, I, I do think they're going to have to earn it. And he is, uh, yeah, he's a good option to have off the bench. Nothing, uh, nothing really spectacular, although sometimes – he does have some putback dunks that are pretty crazy for for a guy who really doesn't doesn't strike you as the best athlete when he's kind of moving around on the court. It's you know he seems like a pretty good athlete, but I think he had a, a seven point eight uh, offensive rebounding percentage according to cleaning the glass, which is I think it was like in the ninety ninth percentile for wings. So he does love being a go guy more than anybody. No, he he does a real good job of sort of finding when his defender falls asleep and and attacking. At the right moments. He's he's good in that role. It's usually something you don't want to see too often. You want those guys getting back in transition, but the Sixers have designated guys who are allowed to 
really hunt those opportunities out. And James certainly has a knack for that. By the way, for the most part, I think they're all going to have the option to uh, to go this year. I, I remember talking to J.J. Redick about this because he was pretty open with sharing strategic stuff. And he was basically like, I'm pretty much the only guy who's not a go guy. <laughs> like, he's like, Ben has the option to go. All the wings, obviously Joe and, you know, the bigs or whatever. But, yeah. And I, I don't think that's going to change this year because they've gotten even bigger. So maybe it'll just be Josh Richardson. I'm now curious. How many offensive rebounds did J.J. Redick have last season? Uh, give me one second. He had... If he got 20. it. No shit. That is his career... No, he had 22 back in 2014-15. He had nine the previous season. That's stunning. Well, that's stunning. I me. don't there, remember a single one. I don't remember. A there must have been a bunch that went off Long the front rim on his shots yeah. <laughs> and, and came firing back at him. But JJ yeah. Redick did a lot of things for this team. Some, a lot of it will be missed. His offensive rebounding was certainly not. I think they can get by without it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Moving on to Jonah Bolden. Whew. Where do we <laughs> even start with this one? Um, wow. In terms, in terms of frustrating Bolden, players. Whew. Jonah is up there. Not frustrating. Like, Jonathan Simmons was frustrating because he just had no business being on the court for a contender. And he drove you nuts because, like, every decision he made was bad. Jonah's frustrating because there's talent there. There's real talent there. Unique talent, too, in the way he can switch defensively, in the way he can theoretically shoot. He can handle a little bit. He can pass a little bit. You can see him lead the break. But, whew, putting those together is more difficult than it seems like it should be. And it's sometimes tough for young big men to know their rotations. Jonah certainly struggles with that. His awareness and his reaction time is not enough. His decisions on when to gamble and when not to gamble are not good enough. And what you end up doing is turning a, a, a physical tool set, which should be a plus defender and a versatile defender, and making him into almost a complete liability in the playoffs. And he doesn't protect the rim well enough to overcome that. He doesn't consistently stretch the floor enough to really fill that role on offense. So he's one of those guys, in, and you hate talking about positions in 2019, but if he's your second worst shooter on the floor, then I don't know that it's going to be real tough. But if you put him at center, then you're relying on him to be that anchor, and he just can't do that. And the Sixers right now have so many options in front of him at both the power forward and the center spot that I, I'm i a little curious to see how much we see of jo- Jonah Bolden this season. I think he could arguably be the 15th guy on the roster in terms, in terms of, of minutes and priority, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I still can't get over the stat that Mike had in this piece. When Bolden played center, 43.9% of opponent field goal attempts came at the rim. They shot 64.5% on those. Those rank in the zero percentile in frequency and 42nd in terms of of shooting percentage. And by the way, frequency is a huge deal there because most shots at the rim are good shots. Right. You take them when you have a high percentage chance of making them. Yep. And that, to me, just speaks to a young player who is out of position far too often. And, yeah, I... Like you said, I, he does have talent. My my problem is that if he's going to succeed, I view him as a five. And the Sixers, like you said, with Tobias, with Al, Mike Scott, they seem pretty set at the four. 
You can even throw Ben in there, too, if, if that's the position he's guarding. But his numbers last season, when you look at the on-off, were so much better at the four. And here's the problem. Well, and, and, and part of that is because when he's playing the four, he's largely playing with Joel Embiid. I was just about and to say it. Yeah. Okay. And the your ma- numbers tend to look better when Joel Embiid's on the court. Though. The majority of his minutes uh, were with Embiid. I think it was like 130 of, you know, it, it didn't get over 200. And you, you can't put in any any stock into those. I think, I mean, we could play next to Embiid and it wouldn't be terrible. I, I think that's what we've learned more than anything over the past couple of years. The uh, The Sixers weren't. Comfortable, by the way, giving them that third string five spot, Bolden, because they signed Kyle Quinn to a contract. Yep. So, I think that was pretty telling as well. Um, well just think of go, go back to trade deadline last season. They brought in what Boban, Greg Monroe, Al Horford, and um, Kyle Quinn as as players who can play center, and that sort of tells you how much they they trust Bolden at that spot. The other thing I can't get out of my head, by the way, is the sequence he had in Game 4 against Brooklyn. Oh, my God. <laughs> where he made, I think he was in for about four possessions and made, made four like, <laughs> consecu- consecutive mistakes. That is one of the, I've, I've, I'm not sure I've ever seen Brett that mad. Like, just the way he got up, screamed at an assistant, I forget who it was, and you could see him point at Jonah and then point at the bench, and then he just sat down. He was furious, and you didn't really see him anymore in meaningful minutes, like he would play like five minutes here, five minutes there, but in meaningful minutes, that was it. He was done. He got some mop-up duty in some of those blowouts, but yeah, he was he was done. It, You know what? That sequence, kind of speaking of my less-than-storied playing career, do you remember Malik Waynes? Yeah, sure. Former Villanova point guard. I believe he had a cup of coffee with the Sixers and the Clippers. We were playing against his team in high school, and uh, we were playing a box-and-one against him. We had a, a really good defensive player on our team who I you know, Malik Waynes was an awesome high school player, so he he was making him work pretty hard for his points, but he was still scoring, obviously. I forget what happened to the good defender on our team, if he got hurt or he was in foul trouble. My coach threw me in completely cold to guard Malik Waynes in the box and one. I was the one. And Malik Waynes hit two, I believe, NBA threes right in my face on consecutive possessions. And then I got subbed out of the game right away. So, in that sense, I guess I feel feel you, Jonah. It's a that's a rough day at the office when you play four possessions and you suck. But uh, <laughs> that's that's I don't know. That was uh, I'm, I'm scarred to this day about that. Uh, he'll I, get uh, over it. Yeah, he'll, he'll get over it. He shot the ball pretty well last year. I will give him that. Thirty six percent on above above the break threes. Thirty five percent overall. I'm still a little skeptical of that because, you know, as we've said many a time, he shoots maybe the hardest ball in the NBA, was a 48% free throw shooter, which tends to be looked at as a decent barometer for three-point shooting. But he, he did have some good moments. I remember around Christmas, he gave them some good minutes at the four, I recall. He had a really good game at uh, at Oracle when they beat the Warriors. Yep. That was that was a good moment for him. But And a game against uh, the Wolves. And Towns played real well in that one. Yes, yes, that was the uh, the Ricky game. I was, yes. in, but you know, I was kind of interviewing people and and watching the game with them. But as the game was unfolding below me, yeah, Jonah Bolden played great in that game. And uh, what is so? What is his contract status? I believe he's non guaranteed after this year. Is that right? Uh, yes. Hold on. 
I just asked that because, you know, we, we did say that he might be 15th in terms of priority. Yes, he's definitely non-guaranteed after this year. Yep. Hmm. I don't remember what the guarantee date was for this year, but he was non-guaranteed coming into this year. too. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. Does have some talent. And on a positive note, he was the best non-Ben Simmons pick made by Brian Colangelo. So Whew. that's something. Sure. Sure. It is It is something all right. All right. Um. Oh, God. Now, now you had to throw that in there. Now I, I can't get that out of my mind. All right. Next up, Shake Milton. I'll tell you what, these are some really electrifying names we're throwing out here for these season previews. But They'll get order, better. We're, <laughs> they will get better. We are going in this order for a reason, and that reason is because half of you still don't really care about basketball yet, especially with the football season just having started. But uh, Shake Milton, who at one point I think people were convinced was going to be the backup point guard, and then they went out later in free agency and they signed Carl Neto and Trey Burke. Two backup point guards they signed. Yes. Ahead of him. Yeah, I just I said them. I just I said them. Okay. Okay. But yeah, I don't. I I'm, I'm frankly in terms of contending, I'm I think it was a smart move to go out there and get those point guards. I don't think Shake is a necessarily ready, and b I don't think his natural position is as a point guard. You know, I think if you're if we do this thing with the season previews, where you go out and you list like what we know, what their role will be, and ultimately like what will define success. And for Shake, it's real easy. He's He's got to make shots. Like, he shot like 31% from three in NBA competition last year. Shot it better in a G League at just under 37%. He was like a 42% three-point shooter in college, and then he came out in summer league and shot like one for 14 from three or whatever it was, uh, which only three games, you don't want to read too much into it. But that shot is everything for him. And on the plus side, it is the one thing that I'm most confident with Shake about. Like, I think he will get that up into at least the mid-30s, and that won't be good enough. I think he needs to approach 40 to really add positive value on the court. But if he can do that, he does have some skills. You know, I don't think he's a point guard because, A, I don't think he has the uh, burst to really create, either for himself or others, whether that's coming off of a screen, coming off a pick-and-roll, or just one-on-one ISO. Like, I don't see that in him. But what I... And he's not an elite. I don't see elite court vision either. But what I do see, and I think we're transitioning into a point guard in SMU and then playing point guard here this past season, you know, I think now when he... You know, if he can get defenders closing out on him, now he's a little more equipped to attack those closeouts and come downhill, and and if a defense rotates, he can make better decisions. I think that will help him there. I think that's where sort of that work will manifest itself because I don't think his his future role in the NBA is as a point guard. I think it's as an off-ball catch-and-shoot player who can now hopefully do marginally more if they do run him off the line. Yeah, his his efficiency numbers are really bad <laughs> when you're looking at them now. Um, I mean, he, I, he, I, he doesn't get to the rim and doesn't finish. He doesn't. You know, I think he's got a pull-up game in him, but that can't be your second most used uh, shot. I agree with you. He's going to be an off-ball guy. Just does not, yeah, just whether it's the burst or the handle, he just does not have the ability to kind of get into the lane as frequently as you would want from a point guard. Yeah, and it's like you said, he's uh, he's billed as a scorer, but you have to make shots at some point. He, uh, I, I don't think he'll get the... Uh, you know, I, I think he's probably behind pretty much every 
wing and, and point guard, right? Would you say – so would you say Bolden and, and Shake are probably 14th and 15th? Could be. I, I think they'll put Shake in front of Korkmaz in the rotation because okay, Shake yeah, that's has right. that contract. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's like you said, he's got to make shots. He, uh, he he did have a little bit of a weird year last year. I, I do wonder if uh, signing an NBA contract full-time will help him. There were It, it is kind of crazy. you, you got to be a professional and, and all that stuff, but there were times when he played a decent game for the Sixers and he got a tap on the shoulder in the locker room after the game, and they were like, you got to fly commercial to Rio Grande Valley tomorrow to play a... 12 p.m. G League game. And, you know, I I do think, like, I I, I was talking to him at Summer League. I remember I wrote something about him at Summer League, and he was like, man, I'm just really happy that I know roughly where I'm going to be. He can still go to the G League, obviously, but if he's playing well or or practicing well or doing whatever and the Sixers don't see a need to, you know, there's not that 45-day limit he had last year. Uh, Yeah, and he's got to make shots. He will – you know, he'll probably have to impress the coaches a little bit during preseason and training camp to even kind of sniff a spot to start the season, unless there's some serious injury. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I like Shake. I think he's got some decent feel, but uh, it's it's going to be a little bit of a, a slog for him to get minutes on this team. Yeah, and like I said, if he makes shots and defenders close out on him, like that world just opens up a little bit more. And some of those athletic limitations – you know, aren't quite as as drastic, uh, and, and you can sort of navigate them a little bit easier. And I do think he has, like like you said, I think he has decent enough feel. Um, I think he has, you know, he's not a quick guy on the perimeter, but I think he will give effort defensively, and he has some length, so he can find ways to contribute. But it is it is going to be tough for him to be a net positive player if he doesn't make shots. And I hate sort of. You know, simplifying down success into make shots, but I I think that's what we're talking about here. To make or miss league, it is. Let's take a break from the podcast to talk about this week's sponsor, BetOnline.ag. Week two of the NFL season is here, but you still have plenty of time to get in on the action and use your football knowledge to your advantage. Over unders, prop bets, futures—you name it, BetOnline has it. There's only one place to go for all your sports betting needs: BetOnline.ag. To celebrate another NFL season, BetOnline.ag and CLNS Media are giving you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Head on over to BetOnline.ag or use your mobile device to join today and use promo code CLNS50 to receive your welcome bonus. Once again, that's CLNS50 for the promo code. Don't sit on the sidelines this football season. Get into all the action with BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Please see betonline.ag's general rules for additional terms and conditions. A minimum deposit of $55 is required to qualify for the bonus. All right, back to the show. So Sports Illustrated released a top 100. All five Sixers players were in there. Just real quick, going in reverse order, Josh Richardson at 71, Tobias Harris at 49, Ben Simmons 29, Al Horford 18, and Joel Embiid 7. What was your biggest surprise of that list? There were a few. I think Ben is the hardest guy to rank. And, and look, way, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go like, and I know you're not going to, but I don't want to be like, oh, well, this one guy they had 82 should have been 80. Like I, a lot of people nitpick, and trust me, as someone who's had to rank players, this is an impossible task. So I think people sometimes look at like one bad ranking and be like, oh, those guys are that's a horrible list. And buddy, you try ranking a, a top 100 and see how it goes. So, 
Certainly, in terms of where Sixers players are ranked, what was the most surprising? It was, uh, first off, good list, I thought. And also, I mean, if if you actually read the art, like read the words Rob Mahoney wrote, it was pretty good. And like th- that is kind of where I got value from it, kind of to go through his thought process on how to rank people instead of just looking at the number next to the name. To me, Ben's the hardest guy to rank. Yeah. And at 23rd, it seemed like Rob Mahoney gave him generally the benefit of the doubt. So he wrote, any semi-regular viewer of the NBA or even a casual passerby through NBA Twitter should have a fairly accurate sense of what Ben Simmons does well and what he does poorly. Where opinions differ is in how to make sense of it. And that, I thought that was perfectly put. And, you know, this is not new ground for a lot of people, but for uh, Ben is so hard to rank for precisely that reason. He has these games, and honestly stretches, I'm thinking back to the end of his rookie season, where he's better than the 23rd best player in the league. But also, as we saw in the playoffs, he has stretches where he's less impactful than that. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, I thought Rob ranking him that high, it goes along with the idea that he could be a top 10 player with a jump shot. He's not that far off. Obviously, there's a pretty big difference between a top 10 player and a top 25 player. But, again, but once you get, like, the difference between, like, 23 and 15 could just end up going down to preference or team needs or something of that sort. Like, they can – I think groupings can start forming pretty – without too much differentiation in that range. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought he was going to be, like, a particularly tough person to rank. I wouldn't have complained if he was a few spots higher or a few spots lower. Shout out to JoJo, by the way. Seventh best player in the world. Yeah. That is... I, saw, I saw a lot of people complaining about Anthony Davis being one spot ahead of him at six. Look, Anthony Davis is a terrific player. You know, I think... Um, He's dominated, though, him in the one, one-on-one matchup. He has, and that would, if I was ranking a list, that would be very low on... You know, that's like back in the day when uh, Jaleel Okafor would take it to Carl Anthony Towns. It's like, okay, but there's, there's 80 other games there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you can I look, I I I can't. I wouldn't I would put him beat ahead of Davis, but I think Davis is a special talent. You know, and I think I think part of this list and pretty much any list that's going to happen Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are going to be docked for how they've played in the second round two years in a row. And I think that is more there's more truth to that with Ben. Like what we said this a million times, some of those really good defenses and smart coaches can take away his or can amplify his weaknesses to a troubling degree when they have a seven-game series to prepare for that. So I think, you know, I think that factors in his struggles bigger with his ranking than with Embiid's, whereas I think Embiid's been a little bit more situation, but he has not played good offensive basketball now two years in a row. And if he wants to really move into this top five category, because there are some excellent players in the NBA, by the way, he's got to perform not only in the playoffs, not only against Jared Allen, but in the, uh, in, in the second round, too, and really left the Sixers to a, a title contention, especially with the, the amount of talent that they have. So that's a little bit hot takey, in, or at least old sports takey, in you know rank, or making the playoffs count that much. But I think that is where a lot of people are going to look at these two and dock them a little bit. And quite frankly, I, I thought Ben was, was ranked pretty highly. I think the one thing I was surprised at was Al being 18. Uh, I would have expected Horford to be ranked after 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 Ben in the ranking. I would have expected Horford maybe in the late twenties, but but they really liked him. Yeah, and, and I get it. You you value playoff basketball and what he can do 
to just help a team win. Uh, yeah, I mean, Embiid, only behind Giannis, Kawhi, LeBron, Steph, Harden, and AD. That's pretty good, man. Uh, I think the the old NBA conventional wisdom that we've subscribed to often is that you need a superstar to win a title. And while that can be a pretty nebulous term, seventh in the league, that's pretty darn close to what we're talking about if it's not already there. Uh, yeah, so that that was good. The uh, Looking at the uh, the four names ahead of Josh Richardson stuck out to me for some reason. Thad Young, yep. Karis LeVert, who I think has a chance to be a decent bit higher uh, next year and just signed what to me looks like a very team-friendly contract in Brooklyn. Jalen Brown, and at 67, J.J. Redick. Yep. Rocco, I believe, was 64 as well. So the uh, these rankings, again, they're they're one man's opinion and not the be-all, end-all. But I did look, even if you did have Tobias at 49, and look, the Sixers were in a position where they kind of had to give that contract out. But it does make you a little little uneasy when you're giving the 49th best player in the NBA $180 million. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. I guess that was just another way to look at it. I, obviously... You know, if you're if you're just looking at what the Sixers situation was, it it made a lot more sense. But yeah, it's uh, you know, he's I I would like to look at the players. I should have done that before this pod, but look at the players around him and see how much money they're all making. But I think uh, I think we can agree Tobias did well for himself this offseason. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of it's it's an overpay no matter how you look at it. I think, but it's a kind of overpay that makes more sense for the Sixers than it does for a team like the Knicks and which isn't saying the Knicks wouldn't have overpaid him and given him that contract because Lord knows they're not the bastion of good decision-making, but he, he makes sense as a complimentary player on the Sixers much more than he makes as a centerpiece. Yeah. I, I do like this time of year when you're kind of gearing up for the NBA season, I'm sure ESPN will have their list pretty soon. You know, I think, I think these, uh, these companies realize that a lot of people click on these articles yes. and, and I'm, I am no different. So all right, moving on. You know, we had a, a, a thing recently. We, well, we had a two-year anniversary at The Athletic. And one of the things was give us a story during your time covering the beat. And now this is this article was unlocked. It's free for subscribers and non-subscribers alike. And basically I chose to make fun of, my, make, make fun of myself. This is um, a great story. You need to tell this again. I mean, it wasn't really a great story, but I'm out there – we were one of my articles while I was out there in London with two years ago when the Sixers played the Celtics in the London game was just talking to fans. Like, why are you a fan? Why do you care about the Sixers? What's it like, you know, following a team and a sport with that time zone difference. And when you can't really see them live and you know, all these sorts of questions and it ended up being pretty fun. I met some really interesting people, including one guy, uh, Deepak, who spent some time here over in the States, spent some time in the Boston area, and gave me the quote of the article, which is, Philadelphia is like Boston, but without the assholes, which I thought was pretty well put, especially for a guy who lives across the pond. But in the course of doing that, I basically had one final interview, which is in the lobby of my hotel. I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And he texts me, and he's like, I'm here. So I get up from my seat in the lobby and I go looking for him, looking down at my phone, look at where he described. And there's just like this little stupid two step stair, like still the lobby. They just 
change the level of it a very tiny bit. And I didn't see these steps at all because I'm a jackass looking at my phone. And I completely miss it. And I sort of step in between steps and twist my ankle. And I'm dropped right away. Like I just drop with my laptop bag and all my stuff. And I'm sitting there and I look up and I see the guy who I'm supposed to be interviewing look at down at me and just in complete like shock. Like he had no idea what to do or how to react. And I get up and I'm right. This is, I don't have a history of ankle problems, but I could tell right away. Like I fucked something up and you know, I try to play it cool. Cause you don't want to, you want to be the tough guy who's, who's not hurt. You can finish the interview. And it was, it was like, it was throbbing. Like there was a point where I started asking him a question. I just, I couldn't finish it because it was not in a good spot, but eventually, and like an idiot, I don't get like ice or anything. I just do the interview. And I, I'd love to say it's because I'm dedicated to my job, but it's really because I'm an idiot. And we do like a 30-minute interview, and it's feeling a little bit better at this time. And I get up, get ready, go over to a store. They have this actually really cool store, um, Argos, where you basically pick out a, a selection on a screen, and then it comes out like five minutes later on a conveyor belt, which is perfect for somebody who's limping around on a bad ankle. So they don't have to go searching through a warehouse. But I get a cane. I walk around London with a cane. But after sitting on it for like two hours at the game, I go to stand up and I just I couldn't put any weight on it. And it really jacked up my my trip. I still went out and did a lot of sightseeing. Had a list of places I want to get to. Couldn't obviously go to the go to the doctor or anything to get it looked at because of our health insurance. Other, well, at least back then, I don't know what the situation is now. Other EU countries, health insurance would work in the UK. United States does not. And I didn't have travel insurance, so I couldn't really do anything. But rather than, you know, my last day, all I had to do was file my story in the morning. And then I had nothing to do. And I just had to get up on a flight the following day. And like an idiot, I went out and I, I, I did my whole sightseeing tour, saw the Tower Bridge. Saw the the Tower of London, went to a old Roman era wall that was right by it. And I'm just walking around like an idiot and completely, I thought my ankle was sprained. Turned out I fractured it. And I walked around London for miles and miles and miles on it because I'm a complete moron. Um, I, I admire that about you. that you Being a moron? You, well, that, but also that you generally see the sights in a, in a different city or whatever. Like, I'm usually the guy who's just chilling in the hotel. I mean, when we were in... In Toronto, you saw the uh, what the CN Tower. Yeah, I stood on the edge of it, four hundred feet up, which was actually really interesting. I mean, that was around the the corner from where we were staying, it was, and it was right around the block. Yep. And I had no interest, so that's my goal for this year. When I go on the road, I'm gonna go take in whatever the uh, the touristy local thing is. Yep. But uh, I will say there there have been plenty of embarrassing moments for myself on the beat as well. Um, I'll just say that there might have been a hot mic at a live stream press conference. Oh, there was a hot mic. I got blamed for that. I wasn't even at that game. We had you and Mike at that game. I got blamed for that. You weren't even there? Yep. Uh, I think Sarah Todd got in a little bit of trouble, too, for that as well. There have been some embarrassing ones. The the tape recorder with Jack Jack McCaffrey. Honestly, Tobias should have gotten maxed out just for that (laughs) back and forth. That was hilarious. Uh, If you haven't seen like, I'm not sure how you would even search for this video. But Jack has an old school, like, analog tape recorder with actual tape in it. Like, it's a tape recorder. And it's it's pretty big. And he holds it up 
to record Tobias, and Tobias just completely stops the uh, the interview. And whoa, what is this? Like, <laughs> yes, like how how I didn't even know what they made these. And to be fair, I didn't know what they made them either. I have no idea where Jack uh, can still find tape for it. Radio, but, radio, radio Shack, if that still exists, probably not. Still right? Exists. The, the one around me closed. I don't know if all of them closed. But uh, yeah, that was great. So. Yeah, that's I guess that's about it for our basketball takes for this this week. Did you uh did you watch the FIBA games at all? I did not. Not not the USA game. I I will say one thing about that. Um and by the way, Pop is officially now the worst coach in US basketball history. So <laughs> he think takes he's, that mantle from Larry Brown? I think uh oh yeah, cuz he was an assistant coach on that team too. So I think it's pretty important to get him out of there starting next year. But uh <laughs> I, I think if, if FIBA's goal was to create more parity, I think they did a good job by making the the World Cup and the Olympics back-to-back years because that obviously most negatively affected the Americans because, I mean, I, I watched the, the entire France game, and I don't know if they had anybody who who was a good NBA player who, who skipped out. I mean, Fournier played, Gobert played. Those are probably the two most important, but they also had, they had Batum, Frankie Smokes played really well. I've never seen him make a shot before, I don't think. And he made a bunch against Kemba Walker. Frankly, outplayed him. The uh, yeah, and it was just uh, you know it was, it was a tough game for the U.S. Gobert against that team was completely dominant, and I guess maybe that made me feel a little bit better about the the impact of of centers moving forward because. I mean, the U.S. Th- this team couldn't get anything at the rim against him, which is just weird. Because when you're, uh, you know, you're accustomed to watching these all-star USA basketball teams, it's just threes and dunks. That's all it is. And yeah, I, I guess France. They it, the thing about this U.S. team, I will say, is they still had a really good chance to win a gold medal. But the problem was the last three rounds, they had about an equal chance of losing. There were just more landmines than usual because, you know, France, after playing a great game against the U.S., I watched their their next game, they got handled by Argentina. Luis Scola, 80 years old. I don't even know if he's still – he's not playing in the NBA anymore, is he? I think it's been a couple of years. Well, he's putting in work in FIBA. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, they came in seventh, but I think they just, just as easily could have won the whole thing. It just – they were kind of playing somewhat 50-50 games from from the uh from the quarterfinals on. Yeah. I, you know, I I think a lot of people get angry with NBA players who turn it down. And I think it's a tough spot because on the one hand we say like the only thing you should be caring about is winning an NBA title and anything you do should be geared towards maximizing your chances at winning an NBA title. And taking this time out of your summer to stop training individually, stop working on your skill development and to risk injury and, and tired legs impacts those chances. I don't know exactly how much, but I think there is some impact. So am I going to dock a player if he's sitting out a tournament? First of all, A, for you know personal time, which I think these players should be able to have, and B, to work on his craft and maximize his chance for a title. Should I dock them for it? I, I'm not really going to do that. And you know, for the, for the United States, it's just, especially FIBA, like the Olympics are more important, but FIBA, I'm not. It's not like it is for the rest of the world. We just don't care about it as much, and I'm sort of okay with that, to be honest. It's probably a good thing in the long run that. Yeah, I these talked international about this the other day. Like, if 
international teams win, it helps the sport because more kids around the world get interested in the sport, and then the, the talent level in the NBA ends up picking up. Like I, I think that is a, uh, I think that is a fair take too. I don't, I just don't, I don't get enraged if the United States doesn't win the gold. Not, not, not FIBA. I will say I do get a little. Uh, I would like the Olympics. Yeah, I, I, I take pride. I want the obviously I want the world and you know more great foreign players, which I think we're, we're generally seeing. I mean, God, look at the freaking Sixers. Like, yeah, what, I think like a quarter of the league's foreign-born at this point. So, and, and I want to, you know, see, it seems like they're doing a really good job of trying to grow the game. I think Africa is kind of the next place where they're they're kind of targeting, you know, trying to get better structure and, and help out some of, the, some of the kids there. But I do take pride in saying, putting our foot down, saying we're going to kick everybody's butt in the Olympics, and there's nothing you can do about it. And to be honest, if we have even our B-plus team, it, like LeBron doesn't even have to play, but but just most of the other kind of top all-stars play, we still should be able to do that. So It's tough. I feel bad for, uh, <laughs> for like, Kemba Walker getting crapped on. I mean, all he did was say yes to show up, and he was right. – just so happened to be pretty much the best guy on the team. And so I felt bad for them on, on that front. And like guys like uh Miles Turner who just got his butt kicked by Gobert. And yeah, it was uh I don't know. I, I do I, I agree with you though in that I don't I really just I don't care as much about the the FIBA World Cup, which is a new thing. It used to be the world championships, but Happy we'll have real basketball pretty soon that we, we, we do will. care about. So not, not not too far at all. All right. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on and we will talk to you soon. I'm in. See you.